This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Hey guys, welcome back for our third episode of our Portable Peds podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Ryan. And we're excited to close out our first month. Um, as you can probably tell by now, each month has a theme, and this one was our CNS infections. So our third question, we'll go over one more CNS infectious case, and then our episode next week, we'll have a review of all the high-hitting points that we've talked about throughout the month. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started with our first question. A 10-year-old previously healthy male presents after 24 hours of non-remitting headache, intractable vomiting, and fevers to 104.1 at home. Mother brought the patient to the ED after symptoms continued to worsen, and she noticed him moving his neck less. He had no recent travel, but he did go to a sleepover and notes that one of his friends there had a GI bug. Given his symptoms, a lumbar puncture is performed, and the fluid obtained is noted to be clear and colorless with an opening pressure of 30 millimeters of H2O, white blood cell count of 200, predominantly lymphocytes, protein was low at 80 milligrams per deciliter, and glucose was slightly elevated to 60 milligrams per deciliter. Of note, his serum glucose at the time was 85. Given these results, what was the most likely etiology of this child's symptomatology? A. Bacterial meningitis. B. Subarachnoid hemorrhage. C. Fungal meningitis. D. Viral meningitis. Or E. Tuberculous meningitis. So we'll give you a second to kind of think about those answers, and then we'll go through them. All right. Hopefully that gave you plenty of time. If not, that's what the pause button's for. So feel free to hit that. If you need to look at the show notes, we have the case there as well for you. All right, let's launch into our answer choices. So answer choice A, bacterial meningitis, is incorrect given the CSF profile. So the opening pressure in cases of bacterial meningitis is typically much higher than viral, with a turbid appearance of the fluid, and high protein count with a low glucose, and a leukocytosis with a neutrophilic predominance. It's important to note that a viral meningitis may have a neutrophilic predominance if caught very early in the disease course. Also, the CSF to serum glucose ratio can be calculated from the question stem, and is typically less than 0.4 in bacterial, fungal, and tubercular meningitis, compared to a typical ratio of greater than 0.6 with viral meningitis. The most common cause of meningitis vary by age group. In newborns, they are the highest risk for having group B strep, also known as strep agalactiae, listeria monocytogenes, E. coli, and Klebsiella. The most common pathogens seen in toddlers and children are strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitidis, and Haemophilus influenza type B, although this is significantly decreased with vaccinations. And in teens, they're most commonly affected by Neisseria meningitidis and Streptococcus pneumoniae. Answer choice B is subarachnoid hemorrhage, and this is an incorrect answer. The signs of acute subarachnoid hemorrhage can include sudden and severe headache, 
vomiting, lethargy, weakness or paralysis, new onset seizure, loss of consciousness, or altered mental status. The keys in this question stem that lead away from this as the correct answer are notably the fever and viral prodrome. Additionally, the lumbar puncture would be grossly bloody or xanthochromic, but may otherwise have normal indices. All right, now going into answer choice C, this one is also incorrect, and this is fungal meningitis. So this one is incorrect also from the CSF profile and for the fact that this patient was overall healthy prior to sudden disease onset. Fungal meningitis is typically more likely to occur in immunocompromised patients, so the fact that he doesn't have a history of HIV or some other immunocompromised state makes it less likely. The CSF profile in a patient with fungal meningitis will have a slightly elevated protein count, a slightly decreased glucose similar to bacterial meningitis, and a mild leukocytosis made up of predominantly monocytes similar to a viral meningitis. Fungal and tuberculous meningitis are essentially indistinguishable at this level. Because of this, you can essentially eliminate both answer choices C and E, which we'll talk about in a sec. But if you guessed answer choice D, you would be correct. So, overall, viral meningitis is the most common cause of meningitis, and the clinical presentation, as well as the lab findings of CSF analysis in this case, are consistent. Of all the viruses, enteroviruses are the most common cause of viral meningitis across all age groups, with paroechoviruses being the next most common, particularly in children. Herpes viruses that cause meningitis include herpes simplex virus types 1 and 2, varicella zoster virus, cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, and human herpes virus 6. Other viral causes include adenovirus, lymphocytic choreomeningitis virus, also known as LCMV, influenza, parainfluenza, and mumps. Also to note, there are more than 100 arthropod-borne viruses, commonly known as arboviruses, that cause disease. The most common of these that cause specifically viral meningitis, encephalitis, or a combination of meningoencephalitis, are West Nile virus, lacrosse virus, and St. Louis virus. These will typically present with a viral prodromal period of headaches, arthralgias, myalgias, and rash. Then they'll be followed by the neurologic symptoms of vomiting, stiff neck, or even mental status changes and or seizures. And with arboviruses, the arthropod-borne viruses we're talking about are specifically mosquitoes. All right, now going into our last answer choice, E. This is specifically tuberculous meningitis. So this one is incorrect for very similar reasons that we talked about with the fungal meningitis answer. So tuberculous meningitis may also have a xanthochromatic, fibrinous, or opaque color to the fluid, whereas fungal can have the fibrin appearance, but is more likely to appear clear like a viral meningitis. And specifically in this case, we said that the fluid was both clear and colorless, making it not xanthrochromic. Tuberculous meningitis is most commonly found in children one to five years old, and there are a very few bacteria that cause an aseptic meningitis, and they include Mycobacterium tuberculosis, or TB, Borrelia burgdorferi, also known as Lyme disease, and Treponema pallida, which is syphilis. So for tuberculous meningitis, the classic RIPES regimen would be used with rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, ethambutol, and streptomycin. This would be the standard therapy for at least nine months in these patients. But that's it for this question for the end of our cases for the month. So if you haven't listened to all the episodes, you can start from the very beginning. We have three episodes for our start of our podcast that had immunizations, specifically uh, tetanus, post-exposure prophylaxis, and influenza. And then this month has been all about infectious diseases. So we had a case about um, torch infections. Our very first episode was about uh, febrile neonates and empiric antibiotics. And then this episode you already listened to. But next week, we're going to have a review episode where we talk specifically about all the high-yield takeaways from our CNS Infectious Disease Month. And then next month, we're going to go into newborn medicine. 
So stay tuned for that. But if you want to follow us, we have a website, portablebeads.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, where we reinforce the concepts you learned today. And then also, if you want to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or your other podcasting platforms, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think. It helps us be more noticeable on those platforms, and we appreciate it. But that's all we got for today. Thanks, guys. Bye. Have a good one.